Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 267, Girt with a sword. I realise it's an odd title. Couldn't think of anything else. Hopefully it will become clear. Anyway, before I start, a bit of advertising, because I know how much you like the advertising. My number two daughter, also known as Mr Ark, had a bit of spare time between working, well messing about having a nice time because she is of an age to do that sort of thing you know it's like produced for me a shop an online shop it is but nascent ladies and gents but if you are so minded you may now buy yourself a bit of history of england merch some delightful t-shirts and some mugs i will continue to work on the site when i get a bit more time and have already lined up someone to do the regnal lists which i know i absolutely know will sell like warm buns If you are interested in a bit of merch, find the shop by going to thehistoryofengland.co.uk. On the black menu bar, you will then see the word shop. Hit that button, gentle listeners, and enter Aladdin's Cave. Or was it Alibaba's Cave? Anyway, somewhere, whatever. And then you can tell me also what you think of the extra logo that Izzy and I did. Now then, last week we had a bit of toing and froing about the reputation of Mary through the ages and some of the issues of her reign. This week, of course... We now need to get on with the events. But let me remind you that before long, we will leave again the nicely flattened and comfortable piste and go off-piste next week because we will be pursuing the life and times and, well, other stuff of one of the blokes who has been our continual companion these many months, Ash Lockton's favourite son, Thomas Cranmer. That will pull us briefly and temporarily out of the chronology a bit, but never fear, 
I am confident you will cope with verve, elegance and no little style because you are, after all, listeners of the History of England podcast and therefore known worldwide for these very qualities. I exaggerate for effect and, frankly, for a bit of flattery. I'm going to go back a bit, mainly for my benefit, to be honest, since the fall of Lady Jane Grey seems a good deal longer ago than the 16th century at this moment in time. So I'm going to recap a few things. Let's pick up the story after it was clear that Mary had won. So let's say the 25th of July, 1553, at around tea time. By that time, Northumberland was safely in the Tower and Mary had set out in a leisurely sort of way to get to London. The pressure was off. She could take her time. Around her were her loyal household council, with the likes of Jerningham, who had done such a great job for her during her rebellion. Also with her would have been William Paget, one of the two of Jane Grey's treacherous council who had rushed to be first to tell Mary that she'd won and she'd been proclaimed Queen in London and they were very, very, very sorry. Very sorry. The other of that pair, Arundel, had escorted Northumberland to the Tower separately. So Mary might have been feeling calm and in control, who knows? But the majority of the great and the good, the political movers and shakers, they were biting their fingernails spending their time on the loo. How would their new monarch deal with the unworthy worms who had failed to support her unequivocally right from the very beginning? As Mary wound her way through England's green and pleasant land, there was a steady stream of great families coming to see her to beg for mercy. Suddenly, it was terribly important to have some family connection to Mary or one of her inner circle. A prime example is William Cecil, the coming man, of course, in previous reigns, but the convinced Protestant, who was now firmly in the brown stuff for all of his supposed reluctance to support Jane Grey fully. However, Cecil's brother-in-law, Nicholas Bacon, was married, and his wife, Anne Bacon, was one of Mary's ladies-in-waiting. On the 25th of July, Cecil and Bacon were able to join Mary's court for a bit of well-designed grovelling, bowing and scraping, all in the best possible taste, of course. He got his chance to see her sometime before the 30th of July, and with Paper Lace's advice, namely, Billy Don't Be a Hero, ringing in his ears, and bearing with him a letter full of explanation and self-justification. He explained, with all the lowliness that any heart can conceive, and let me confirm on Cecil's behalf that it's pretty darn lowly, let me tell you. That he'd never wanted to stand in Mary's way. That he had declared his scruples and only taken part because her brother had ordered it and he couldn't escape. Or he'd made himself as scarce as any man, however lonely, could possibly be expected to. Oh, and had he mentioned just how lonely he was feeling right now? Hopefully, he went on, he might feel some difference from others that have more plainly offended and yet been partakers of Her Highness's bountifulness and grace. At which point you might expect Mary to ask for a little more confirmation on the current state of his lowliness nevels. But it did the trick. On the 31st of July, Cecil was able to kiss the Queen's hand and he was accepted back into her grace. No one ever said politics was supposed to be dignified. Cecil carried on with the court to London, keeping his head down and then popped his tail neatly between his legs, made a few furtive glances left and right and slipped into the shadows. In the words of the cause, Mary had forgiven but not forgotten and he would not be picking up any government jobs any time soon. 
On the 30th of July also, Francis Gray had managed to get an audience with Mary since she was an old friend. And rather remarkably, she managed to get a promise that her husband, Suffolk, would be released, which is really something of a coup. The Duchess of Northumberland tried the same trick, pulling the strings of Lady Anne Paget, Sarah Clarencius and the Marchioness of Exeter. But none of these strings could open a door to Mary's heart. Northumberland, as we know, was heading toastwards. Nicholas Ridley, Bishop of London, was similar. In fact, you have to wonder why he ever bothered to set off for Mary's court, and he was arrested before he could even get there. In the middle rank were those who were released from the hook for a small consideration, or more likely, a substantial consideration. Chief Justice Montague, for example, was imprisoned and gently fermented until he was in a suitable state of panic, fear and collapse, and was then forced to cough up some land and find a thousand quid. All around London, then, was the sound of guilty nobility being held up by the ankles and shaken hard to see what came out of their pockets, and this turned out to be a nice little earner for the Crown to get things started. There was a deal of firing that went on too, not that sort of firing that'll come later, I mean firing as in the opposite of hiring in this case. The royal printer, who had possessed the nerve to print Jane's proclamation, he was given his marching orders, as was John Cheek, who'd written Jane's letter to Mary out by his hand. All the while, Mary would have been subjected to a flood of obsequiousness that must have demanded constant access to a sick bag. Interestingly, while poor Mary was working her way through the vomit of apology on her way to London, she received a letter of congratulation from her 19-year-old little sister Elizabeth. And on the 29th of July, Elizabeth rocked up in London. She rocked up in no little style, with 2,000 horse, with all her men wearing green, trimmed in white, using materials in accordance with their rank. Now that is rocking up and no mistake. I say wearing materials in accordance with their rank because England is still under the control of sumptuary laws governing who could wear what, though we haven't mentioned them for a while. They're still around, just FYI. Anyway, by coming into London in that way, Elizabeth was making a point about her dynastic rights. Elizabeth, as we'll find out, was a tricky kind of soul. When she'd done that, she turned right round, left most of her green-coated horsemen behind, and went to meet Mary all smiles and meekness, with a tinge of lowliness of heart thrown in, so that she could ride demurely into London behind her sister, like a loyal and dutiful sister should. This, of course, was on the 3rd of April 1553, when Mary rode into London in triumph, riding on a palfrey with gold-embroidered trappings reaching to the ground. As Mary came near the tower, with the cheers of her subjects ringing out, there was a piece of pure theatre, Outside the tower was a short row of Mary's subjects, kneeling on the ground in a position of supplicants for mercy. There was Stephen Gardiner, the ex-Bishop of Winchester. There was Bishop Edmund Bonner. And there was the octogenarian Duke of Norfolk. Remember him? Mary shared her family's sense of drama and occasion. She kissed each one. These are my prisoners, she declared to the world, and she set them free. Great stuff. Interestingly, on the 8th of August, Mary then allowed Edward VI's funeral to go ahead according to Cranmer's 1552 rite, although Mary had a mass celebrated privately for herself. And you might well wonder what her attitude was towards religion at this point. Why were all these Protestant turkeys appearing to be voting for Christmas? And that is a good question. 
but also an easy question to answer, which, of course, is the very best kind of question. Firstly, as the rebellion had made clear, dynasty trumped religion. And it's always worth remembering that hindsight over this great and fundamental change of the English Reformation that would be such a factor in English history for the next 300 years can make us exaggerate the way people viewed it at the time. Yes, it was incredibly important. No, it wasn't the most important thing all the time. However, there was clearly an issue around religion and everyone knew it. In general, the story now is that there were probably still more Catholics in England than there were Protestants. But the situation might be summed up by the return to London of Edwin Sands. You might remember Edwin Sands, the Protestant Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge University, who had been at Northumberland's side in the marketplace with all the coins, the tears and the laughter. Well, he went to the Tower with Northumberland, and there he was, riding back into London with everyone yelling at Northumberland, who they hated, and there was old you know, Gilbert Potter and his earlessness and all that. Well, Edwin... He had a bit of hate thrown at him as well, from a woman standing in her doorway who yelled at him, Fie on thee, thou knave, thou traitor, thou heretic. So, you know, up with the Catholics, down with the prots. But then a woman on the other side of the street yelled right back, Fie on thee, neighbour, good gentleman, God be thy comfort, and give thee strength to stand in God's cause. So, let us take a couple of lessons from this. London is divided, and indeed the country is divided. There is a general rule, as you go south and east, you're more likely to be Protestant, north and west, more likely to be Catholic, very, very, and indeed, very roughly. And secondly, that people were well able to yell each other. This mattered to people a lot. So, all over London, Catholics were reasserting their right to hear Mass, while Protestant preachers were angrily reasserting their creed as well. Protestant John Rogers preached the vehement sermon, exhorting the people to beware of all pestilent popery, idolatry and superstition. And there was a riot at St Paul's Cross, the traditional place of sermon making. Stephen Gardner's chaplain at that time quelled the riot. He quelled it by reading out a proclamation that Mary had issued that very month of August. Well, actually, he quelled the riot by having 200 nasty-looking and burly soldiers armed to the teeth with halberds, but once the halberdiers had done their bit according to their idiom, he then read out Mary's proclamation. Here's a bit of it. Albeit her grace's conscience is stayed in matter of religion, yet she meaneth graciously not to compel or constrain other men's consciences, otherwise than God shall, as she trusteth, put in their hearts a persuasion of the truth that she is in, through the opening of his word unto them by godly, virtuous and learned preachers. Essentially, it's a statement of toleration. Now, there are no eyewitnesses who have recorded watching Mary during the creating of this proclamation, or at least none who have recorded what was presumably a significant extension of Mary's nose during the production of what must surely be a porky pie of an extent that would make the good citizens of even Melton Mowbray proud. It was a promise that would prove to be more than a little hollow, of course. But despite the enormity of the fib, I have yet to read any historian that presents this as a barefaced lie that it was to prove. Because, incredible as it might seem, Mary probably did firmly believe it at the time that she created this proclamation. And why 
gives a very interesting insight into Mary's character, it seems to me. Now, we already know a lot about her. She's been in our company for a long time, of course. And we know that she's brave, constant, loyal, fiercely stubborn. We will find out that she's conscientious, hard-working, and well capable of considering the pros and cons and making a hard-headed decision. We know that she's capable of moderation. Relatively few died in the aftermath of her accession to the throne, despite the pleading of Renard and the imperial agents. But she could be stunningly naive and often seemed to have an impressive inability to feel any empathy, and in critical circumstances really able to put herself in the shoes of others. So, the point is that when she made this proclamation, she really believed it, because she believed that all these Protestant heretics were simply misguided. She had not the power to understand the depth of their commitment. As far as Mary was concerned in 1553, she couldn't really blame these people. After all, had just been badly misled by some very naughty people. All that needed to happen was for someone to come along and explain it to them all. There'd be a national slapping of foreheads, an enormous groan of dong would rise from the hills and valleys of the kingdom, and everything would get back to normal. Now, you might think this is potty, but to a large extent, the enormously erudite and intelligent Cardinal Reginald Poole would share the very same misapprehension. And anyway, this is the point about religion at the time. Religion was a matter of conscience, and conscience was put in your brain by God. And therefore, to differ from God's truth in your head, which was, of course, as far as Mary was concerned, was the Catholic truth, was absolutely unthinkable. I mean, who could disagree with God? So, of course, once it was explained to her subjects that they had turned aside like sheep from the voice of their conscience, they would return to the fold of righteousness just trying to use a bit of appropriately religious imagery. Now, this, of course, would make things even worse when people had been so enlightened by virtuous men and preachers. Once that had happened, there was no excuse for them. They must simply be vile defiers of conscience and the word of God, and as such, must be ruthlessly eradicated. Mary was to stick to her proclamation until she could get Parliament to reverse the iniquitous laws of her brother. And the long and short is that we enter a weird world of half-light for a few months, when until religion has been officially put right, the agents of England's most Catholic monarch were for a while preventing Catholics from restarting the Mass, because, for the moment, it was against the laws of the land. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Now then, there were three things on Mary's mind, initially at least. Religion, marriage and dynasty. The last two obviously linked. At her side, advising her were three parties, broadly speaking. 
There was her Kenninghall Council, the folks from back home, of 18 people who are now sworn on to the new Royal Council. The second group were those who had been part of Henry VIII's Royal Council, 17 of those, and they were also now sworn into the new Queen's Council. Prominent amongst those would be William Paget, who became the Lord Privy Seal and therefore the Prime Mover. Also, Stephen Gardiner, who became Lord Chancellor, and then William Paulet, the Marquis of Winchester, who became Lord Treasurer. The Marquis of Winchester, I am told, is the oldest Marquisate still remaining in existence. There's a little-known fact for you. Now, in practice, Paget would trim down what became a very large number of councillors to a small core of around 19, and the average meeting size was actually about 12. The old Kenning Hall Council within this group quickly became rather invisible or stopped attending the Royal Council, and it was the remaining councillors who believed that they should be setting policy with the Queen. This, however, was not quite how it turned out. Through the later Henrician years, and particularly in Edward's reign, the movement had been towards a kind of national government, council, monarch and parliament working together. Mary's reign tended a bit back towards the dynastic, and although largely ineffectual in council, Mary's old advisers, her old Kenninghall advisers, remained very influential through their role as courtiers, influencing the mind of the Queen. So I said three groups, and initially at least... There is a third, and his name is Charles V, or maybe we should call him Simon Renard, the Imperial Ambassador. We've already met Renard, of course, during the rebellion, and he was busy letting it be known to anybody that would listen that the real winner of the rebellion was he, Renard, claiming to have done the crucial work to divide Jane's royal council. Renard is constantly with the Queen now, advising, pressurising. And for Mary... Charles V had, of course, been a source of strength and support all through the years of misery and isolation, and she turned to him now and Renard for advice. Not that she slavishly followed said advice, let it be noted. Renard advocated, for example, immediate death for Jane Grey and was appalled at the level of the Queen's clemency, though he was also to advocate caution with the pace of religious reform. The point, though, is that the quality of the discussion appears to be very different to what we might expect between that of a foreign power and the Queen, and it emphasises the essentially dynastic nature of Mary's mindset. This is advice from a brother monarch and family member, rather than the management of the representative of a foreign power. Renard's immediate objective, then, was to keep Mary in power, obviously, so that England could be returned to the path of righteousness rather than the path that rocks, and Mary should marry a Habsburg. Before they could get to that, though, there was the small matter of a coronation, which has an impact on the debate about Mary's role in establishing queenship as a normal and acceptable thing. As we said last week, it's quite traditional to big up the issues here, to talk about the level of patriarchy in the early modern society, the father as head of the family, king as head of the kingdom, second only to God. And some historians have indeed made something of a fuss about Mary's role as queen in this regard. So David Starkey, for example, notes that Mary delegated the role of creating the traditional Knights of Bath before her coronation thus seemingly distancing himself from one of the core traditional roles of monarchy, that of beating up foreign potentates and killing Frenchmen. Judith Richards, however, sees it rather differently. She notes that there were plenty of other examples of women rulers, Isabella of Castile, for example, and others, if not quite monarchs, 
and certainly vice-regents like Mary of Austria. There had never been a Salic law in England as there was in France to exclude women. Women could inherit when there was no male heir. The femme sole was a reasonably common occurrence in towns running their businesses. However, there is of course no doubt that women were far more vulnerable when inheriting and of course Henry's own insistence on a male heir was hardly in Mary's favour. So, one standard assumption that many took was that once Mary was married, she would pass the real decision-making power and authority to her husband. For some, the danger of that then magnified, of course, the importance of who Mary chose to marry, because it could be that she would therefore be choosing their effective king. It seems that Mary was well aware of this danger. Mary was a traditional person in many ways, One of those fiercely held traditions was that she was her father's daughter and his rightful heir, and her regal authority would therefore mirror his in every way as far as she was concerned. At Kenninghall, she inspected her troops, no sign of backing away from her martial role there. She touched for the king's evil scrofula from the very start, and by so doing, she emphasised that her authority was sacral, as much as any male monarchs would have been. And then there is this description from the Venetian ambassador, that Mary seems to delight above all in arraying herself elegantly and magnificently. She also wears much embroidery and gowns and mantles of cloth of gold and cloth of silver of great value and changes every day. She also makes great use of jewels, wearing them both on her chaperone and around her neck as trimming for her gowns, in which jewels she delights greatly. It has to be said that the Spanish would then later laugh behind their hands at Mary's use of all this finery and giggle about how poorly she chose what she wore. The colours were all wrong apparently. Don't ask me, I have the dress sense of the fashion editor for Oxfam, but I might note that while the English will be accused of xenophobia as regards the Spanish marriage, they're given a pretty close race for the gold medal by Philip's Spanish courtiers. I've also read one historian using Mary's love of jewellery to present her as a rather sad and desperate figure, and it's good I can't find the reference anymore, since it alerts even my poorly developed sexism radar. Mary was, of course, simply doing what so many monarchs knew was critical, to present their magnificence, regality and power. Straightforward enough. In establishing her right, Mary was also helped by statute, the fact that Henry's succession laws had not been repealed by any parliament of the dying Edward allowed her subjects to proclaim Mary as the virtuous Lady Mary, our lawful queen. And you might also note that Mary's age and unblemished reputation made her much more acceptable to society as a whole. In her coronation on Sunday the 1st of October, Mary allowed no slip twixt lip and cup. She carried the sceptre traditionally carried by queens but she also wore all the regalia of kings. Girt with a sword as when one is armed a knight and a king's sceptre placed in one hand. So, all this was good. But the greatest challenge, of course, would be in choosing her husband and the terms in which that was done. Obviously, the marriage of a monarch was deeply political anyway, and as you can imagine, ever more so here. Mary claimed not to have really thought about marriage before becoming queen. Her mum actually had told her not to get married at all in a letter, telling her not to think or desire any husband for Christ's passion. 
But now, Mary was determined to do so. She saw it as her dynastic duty, and she immediately turned to her uncle, Charles V, maybe seeing him as a sort of head of the family, who knows, rather than as, as I also keep banging on about, the head of a massive foreign power. So she wrote to Charles, and she said that she would choose whomsoever you might recommend, which is nice, clear, and unequivocal. It still surprises me just a little bit how little such a thing is remarked on, but look, fair enough. Meanwhile, Renard was suggesting that a foreign husband might help her in her reign. And also, Charles had lined up his 27-year-old son Philip, who himself had been married and had a son, but had recently been widowed. Now, Philip was not jumping for joy at the thought of marrying the 37-year-old Mary, but he was a dutiful son. On the 10th of October, 1553 then, Renard formally offered Mary the hand of Prince Philip of Spain. For both Charles and Philip, of course, this was the most wonderful opportunity. But it should not be seen in terms of an opportunity to fold a new territory into the already sprawling Habsburg Empire. It's reasonably clear that from the beginning, Philip had no intention of spending his whole life messing about with domestic English politics, although he was to hate the treaty that emerged. It should be seen, rather, in the context of Habsburg international ambitions. Philip hoped to acquire the Low Countries from his father as part of his inheritance, and ownership of England would be perfect to bind together a set of territories divided by the substantial body of France. And, of course, it would revive the old Spanish-Burgundian-English Triple Alliance, with which Ferdinand had played so fast and loose in the early days of the century. And the purpose of all that was, of course, to kill Frenchmen, a cause to which the Habsburg were even more dedicated than the English. Mary was keen from the start about the idea. Pictures of Philip showed a young man with a fine, shapely leg. And the normal rubric is that, though worried at getting married at what was then a relatively late age, Mary was genuinely excited and as enamoured of her prospective husband as you can be when you've only seen a picture. However, there was more than this in Mary's calculation. As she would later explain to her council, everyone was worried about the alliance of France and Scotland and the betrothal of Mary Queen of Scots to the Dauphin, and it would be helpful to have a foreign power to counterbalance that threat. And he was, of course, safely and delightfully Catholic. So, I think the point about that is there is this tradition of a very impulsive and emotional decision by Mary. I don't think you had to take that approach at all. She very clearly looked at the options. However, she did rather spring it on the council, and they were appalled almost to a man, with the most important exception of William Paget. Stephen Gardner, as a man befitting his talents, was already the most significant of the characters in the council, and like the others, he wanted the Queen to marry an Englishman, and the front-runner for that title was a man called Edward Courtney. Edward is a young man usually dismissed as volatile and lightweight. He'd been in the Tower since Henry VIII had executed his dad for treason in 1538, and his reliability was not helped by his clearly stated desire to get his hands on Geoffrey de Poole, the man whose accusations had put his dad's head in a basket. But he had royal blood, he was Catholic, and he was young. He was without doubt the council's firm favourite. Basically, Gardner in particular thought that the English would be up in arms about the idea of a Catholic foreign monarch becoming King of England. Of all the religious changes Henry and Edward had made, the most popular by far with pretty much everyone, not just the Prots, was the split with Rome. Nor did anyone want to be dragged into a war with France. 
no one wanted to have effectively a foreign ruler should Mary turn out to be the kind of person who would defer in all things to her husband. And Mary, it had to be said, had generally a very traditional view of the world. So this was not an obscure fear. Plus, England had close connections through trade to Germany and the Low Countries, and all the talk there at the time was of a growing Spanish tyranny. Incidentally, the match was not well regarded by the Spanish either, as it happens. While the council pretended to accept Mary's decision with as good a grace as they could muster, Gardner was not a quitter. There is, so I am told, more than one way to skin a cat, though don't try this at home. He and others of the household spoke to her privately, which she took in reasonably good part, but firmly and decisively disagreed. So, Gardner managed to let the decision slip to some members of his parliament which were sitting at the time. Oops, oh dear me, did I say that? Don't tell anyone, will you? Before you could say schism, a delegation from the Commons asked to see their Queen. And after three weeks pleading illness on the 16th of November 1553, she finally let them in to see her. The Speaker of the Commons gave a long and apparently rambling discourse on why they hated it and exactly how much they hated it in some fine but suitably obsequious detail. When he'd finished all of that, Gardner as Chancellor should probably have replied on her behalf. But instead, Mary took the role on for herself and gave the Speaker both barrels. Her message essentially was, get your nose out of my business. I now rule over you by the best right possible, and being a free woman, I have full right and sufficient years to discern a suitable partner in love. There was more indignant fury on the same lines, and with fleas buzzing in their ears, the delegation shuffled out. Hearing a nervous shuffling and choking noise behind her, Mary spotted Gardner trying to slither out as well. So she gave him the sharp side of the royal tongue to boot, strongly suspecting that he'd set her up. However, when news of this got out, for some folks this was too much. For Thomas Wyatt, son of a poet, courtier, it was an act of treachery before a foreign power, and others agreed with him. A Cornish nobleman called Peter Carew, the miffed Courtney, and Suffolk, Jane's father. We will hear more about that in a few weeks' time when we return from Thomas Cranmer to the main narrative. But next week, then, it's to Thomas we turn and his story. And then on the 21st of March, a significant date, I will release Sunday the 24th of March episode early, and it shall be an interview with Professor Dermot McCulloch, author of the definitive biography of Thomas Cranmer, and an absolute joy and privilege to talk to. Then there's a week off for me, so it's probably the 7th of April until we return to Mary's relationships with the likes of Wyatt, but also to hear a bit more about Elizabeth and Mary's first parliament. Before I go, I released this episode a little late because like a good son I was with my aged M and there was a small group of people so dedicated and supportive that they asked what was going on, where was the episode this very morning, which is quite flattering. So, particular thanks to Luke, Rowena, Jon, Lisa, Michelle, Ken, Alison, Mark, Anne, Tyrant and of course Steve who also managed to spot the Woodhouse reference to boot. I offer the Gold Pineapple Award to you all. Don't forget that if you happen to be in need of a new mug or t-shirt, you could do worse than hop along to the History of England shop at thehistoryofengland.co.uk and see on the black nav bar the word shop and click on that. Thanks to all of you for listening, for your lovely reviews and most of all to my members. Good luck everyone and have a week of outstanding and glittering magnificence and laughter. (laughs) 